Talk Recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Chris Degenier on Talk Show. It's Friday, December 16th, 2011, and this year's just about gone. Another year and five days, and, and we'll all be French toast, maybe. No, nah, I'm just kidding. I can't buy into that stuff. I had a call. I'm sorry. I'm getting confused. I had an email today, I think it was, asking me about um, the Rechabites in Jeremiah chapter 35, and, and I would thought I would start off tonight by talking about that, but we're going to um, conclude. I, I, I pray, Yahweh willing, we're going to conclude our series on Mark tonight with Mark chapters 15 and 16. And if anybody's familiar with the Christogenian New Testament, they should know that the Mark chapter 16 presentation is going to be pretty short. But I also have an explanation of that. I want to thank you all for listening tonight and, and praise Yahweh. Jeremiah chapter 35, what we see, um, what seems like Yahweh's commendation of the Rechabites, or, or Rechabites, or Rechabites, or however you want to pronounce it, I'll say Rechabites, the the um the the Rechabites are a clan of the Kenites. They're mentioned in um in, in Second Chronicles chapter two in the last verse, where it explains that the Kenites are the scribes in Jerusalem, and Rechab, the house of Rechab, has sprung from them. Now there's another Rechab in the Bible. There are actually two more Rechabs in the Bible. One of them was a wife of Judah, the, the woman of, of um, Jericho, who, who had hung the purple thread, or, or the scarlet thread out, and, and helped the, the, the spies for Joshua. And, and it can be, um, it, it seems to be inferred that she was actually of the, the dispersion of the tribe of Judah, Zara Judah, and not Pharez Judah. And, and that, that's very possible, because that scarlet thread was that, that family insignia. And, and that doesn't matter. It's it, it's not not for my purposes here. It's sure that she wasn't related to the Rechabites of Jeremiah chapter thirty-five. Another one, another Rechab is the son of the tribe of Benjamin, and and a lot of um, wayward Bible commentators have tried to relate him to these Rechabites, and that can't be done either. What we have to assume that not every man with the same name in any given society is, is automatically related. The Rechabites, however, we are explicitly told, the Rechabites of, of Jeremiah chapter 35, we're explicitly told that they were Kenites. They are of the descendants of Cain. They are a portion of the cursed people. There's no doubt. There's no doubt in Scripture. Jeremiah chapter 35, Yahweh tells Jeremiah, the, the word which came unto Jeremiah from Yahweh in the days of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, the king of Judah, saying, Go unto the house of the Rechabites, and speak unto them, and bring them into the house of Yahweh, into one of the chambers, and give them wine to drink. Then I, meaning Jeremiah, then I took Jeazaniah, the son of Jeremiah, the son of Habazaniah, and his brethren, and all his sons, and the whole house of the Rechabites. Now, of course, we see somebody named Jeremiah, or the son of, Je of someone named Jeremiah listed among them. Now, of course, that's not a relation to Jeremiah the prophet, right? This is Jeremiah the prophet speaking. 
And I brought them into the house of Yahweh, into the chamber of the sons of Hanan, the son of Igdalia, a man of God. But now right away a Christian identist would balk at why the Rechabites are being brought into the house of Yahweh. Well, well I'm, I'm going to be honest and upfront. It seems to me that the Kenites being described in Judea, they were probably always going in and out of the house of Yahweh, out of the temple. The, the, the people of Judah, the people of Jerusalem, that they dropped the ball long before Jerusalem was destroyed in 586 B.C. And, and that's clear from Jeremiah. That's clear from Ezekiel chapter 16, Jeremiah chapter 2, Jeremiah chapter 19, and, and many other chapters. And I brought them into the house of Yahweh, into the chamber of the sons of Hanan, the son of Igdalia, a man of God, which was by the chamber of the princes, which was above the chamber of Messiah, the son of Shalom, the keeper of the door. And I set before the sons of the house of the Rechabites pots full of wine and cups, and I said to them, drink you wine. But they said, we will drink no wine. For Jonadab, the son of Rechab, our father, commanded us, saying, ye shall drink no wine, neither ye nor your sons forever. In the ancient world, a man could bind his seed to a vow. Isaac, our father, bound us to a vow when Abraham put him on the altar. And, of course, Abraham partook in binding his descendants to a vow. Because when Isaac was placed on the altar, he became the property of the God of the altar. That's the ancient tradition. And all of his children were bound to that, whether they like it or not. I mean, we could resist it. We could say it's not fair. Well, well, that was life in the ancient world. That was the life of our fathers, that a man could bind all of his sons to a vow. And here we see that Rechab, all of his descendants were bound to this vow forever. By Jonadab, the son of Rechab, I'm sorry. Neither shall ye build a house, nor sow seed, that they're not going to be farmers, nor plant a vineyard, nor have any, but all your days ye shall dwell in tents, that ye may live many days in the land where you are strangers. The Kenites didn't have their own land. They were always a, a, um, a minority and, and interlopers in the lands where they traveled. And, and we see that's the hereditary curse of the Jew today even. Thus have we obeyed the voice of Jonadab, the son of Rechab, our father, in all that he has charged us. To drink no wine all our days, we, our wives, our sons, or our daughters. Nor to build houses for us to dwell in, neither have we vineyard, nor field, nor seed. Now, now this is at least seven or eight hundred years, probably longer than that, I'm guessing, at after Rechab had actually lived. I mean, this is a long time after Rechab's placement with, with the Kenites in, in, in the Book of Chronicles. But we have dwelt in tents and obeyed and done according to all that Jonadab, our father, commanded us. We're going to learn the lesson there in about two or three verses. And I'll read Jeremiah thirty-five eleven. But it came to pass when Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up into the land that we said, Come and let us go to Jerusalem for fear of the army of the Chaldeans, for fear of the army of the Syrians, so we dwell at Jerusalem. That this is the, um, the, the Rechabites still speaking. Then came the word of Yahweh unto Jeremiah, saying, Thus saith Yahweh of hosts, the God of Israel, Go and tell the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, Will you not receive instruction to hearken to my word, saith Yahweh? 
the children of Israel are the children of Yahweh their God, Deuteronomy 14.1. The sons of the house of Rechab, the sons of Jonadab, are being set forth here as an example. Because the children of the enemies of God, they obey their father, but we can't obey ours. That's the example which is being set forth. Verse 15 says, I have sent unto you also all my servants the prophets, rising up early and sending them, saying, Return now ye every man from his evil way and amend your doings, and go not after other gods to serve them, and you shall dwell in the land which I have given to you and your fathers. The same promise that the sons of Rechab had from their ancestor Jonadab. They obeyed their father, and they're still dwelling safely in a land where they are strangers. The children of Israel, they couldn't obey their God. They couldn't obey their father. So therefore, they're being reprimanded here, and compared to the children of the devil, who happen to thrive because they do what their father wants them to do, and we see that very thing of the Jews today. And they are thriving because they're acting in that same manner which their father acted in. And we can't do that. We can't be obedient to our God and Father. So therefore, we are punished. That's the story of Jeremiah chapter 35. They're still children of the devil. They're still the children of Cain. They're still the cursed children of those who rebelled against the creation of God. That's not going to change them. Their obedience to their evil father is not going to change them. It's not going to put them into the kingdom of heaven. Rather, Yahweh is using them as an example, saying, hey, even my enemies, they can obey their father. Why can't you obey yours? So we have nothing to boast about. That's the lesson of the Rechabites. Now to, to, to commence with our examination of um, the Gospel of Mark. Last week we concluded with the end of Mark chapter 14 and the unlawful trial of Yahshua Christ in the court of the high priest. There we saw that while they wanted to have Christ executed, they had a problem with consistent witnesses establishing a charge worthy of a capital offense. Therefore, the high priest himself provoked Christ in order to instigate a charge that satisfied those people who were taking part in the judgment against him. And, and after the high priest provoked Christ, all of the elders of the Pharisees and the Sadducees that were gathered in the house of the high priest agreed. Mark 15, chapter 1. And immediately at morning, making, the count, making counsel, the high priests with the elders and the scribes and all the council. Binding Yahshua, they let him off and turned him over to Pilate. Here we see that after the mock show trial in the home of the high priest, they still required a meeting in order to work up a plan by which they could convincingly present Christ to Pilate as a criminal who was worthy of execution. This meeting was a strategy meeting. It was how they were going to present him to Pilate in order to affect his execution, that's what they wanted. When Judea, 
was designated as a kingdom up until the time of Herod Archelaus, around 9 AD, I believe, the king had the privilege of trying capital offenses by Roman law. Up until the time of Herod Archelaus, the king, Herod the Great before him, could put his citizens to death if he felt that there was convincing evidence warranting their death. However, when Judea was reduced to a province and the Roman governor was set over the province by an emperor, the local political leaders lost that privilege. And only the Roman governor from that time could try capital offenses. Christ having had many followers, the high priests could not risk politically the murder of Christ by themselves. In Matthew chapter 26, verses 3 through 5, we learn that the high priests had been planning for a way to execute Christ while avoiding a tumult among the people. Since this was the feast, Jerusalem was typically very crowded at the time, and a major disturbance would have invited an inquiry by the Roman officials. They had to, in order to avoid that, they had to pressure the Roman governor into complying with their wishes. A Roman citizen, such as Paul of Tarsus was, would have the right to appeal to Caesar. We see in Acts chapter 27 that Paul, not wanting to trust either the Judeans or the possibly corrupt governor with his fate, exercised that right and was sent to Rome in chains. However, Christ was not a Roman citizen, having been born in Judea, and he did not have that right of appeal to Caesar. The governor, and, and Pilate tells Christ that as it is recorded in the Gospel of John, the governor has the last say of, of the right of, of right of life or death over Christ, either in execution or a stay of execution. Matthew 15, verse 2. And Pilate questioned him, Are you the king of the Judeans? So they must have already told um, Mark, I mean, I'm sorry. They must have already told the governor what the charges were, and, and Mark simply didn't record that. Are you the king of the Judeans? Then responding to him, he says, you say. And the high priests accuse him of many things. The King James Version and the late manuscripts upon which it is based add the words, but he answered nothing to the end of verse 3. But the words, that these words do appear in one ancient manuscript, the Codex Washingtonensis, which date to the 5th century, which dates to the 5th century, but they don't appear in the others, so they're probably spurious, and they're repeated a little further on anyway. Notice again, and, and I, I noted this often in the Gospel of Matthew in the presentation on that Gospel here, that um, Christ was asked a question, and his answer was, you say. He's not denying it, but he's not admitting it. He's turning the question around rhetorically, on the inquirer, inquirer, on, on the person that asked it, and he's he's um, basically accusing the person that asked the question of admitting the facts of the question by doing that. It, it's a rhetorical device that that we that, that's lost to us for the most part today. Uh, I can't think of an example of it in in, in our modern colloquialism, although there may be. 
Mark 15, verse 4. Then Pilate questioned him, saying, again, saying, Would you not answer anything? Look at how many things they accuse you of. But Yahshua did not yet answer anything, consequently for Pilate to wonder. Yahshua's silence is in fulfillment of Isaiah 53, 7. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opens not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is dumb, so he opened not his mouth. But this same event is described quite similarly in the account as it is given in Matthew 27, Matthew chapter 27, verses 11 through 14. Yet many of the details which exist in the other Gospels are not found in Mark's Gospel. Mark's Gospel is very concise. It's a lot shorter than the other Gospels overall, and most of these accounts are shorter. For instance, Matthew chapter 27, verses 1 through 10 gives many of the details surrounding the fate of Judas Iscariot and the 30 pieces of silver, which are not found in Mark's Gospel at all. This is evident throughout Mark's Gospel, that there are many missing details. Matthew was an eyewitness to many of these things. He was a chosen apostle. And he created his much more detailed account at a far earlier time. Luke's account is much more detailed, but Luke's account, as Luke tells us in the opening of his gospel, was actually created from the records of many witnesses. Mark was compelled at a much later time to record many of the things that were related to him by Peter, because Mark's gospel, as we established Opening this commentary on the Gospel of Mark was actually a record of Peter's Gospel. Even if Mark was the youth in the garden, as we discussed last week, who fled naked from the temple soldiers when Christ was seized, that does not necessarily mean that he actually witnessed the ministry and trials of Christ to the same extent as the other apostles. The four gospel accounts all tell us of the trials and crucifixion of Christ from four different aspects, and we must remember that the disciples were scattered at this time. We read at Mark chapter 14, verse 50 of the events of the night before this, that leaving him they all fled. Peter followed along and, and watched what they, what, what they did with Christ and where they brought him, as it is recorded in Matthew and elsewhere. And we also learn from John's gospel that he was with Peter. In John, we have a more complete account of what transpired between Christ and Pilate. In Luke alone, we learn that Pilate sent Christ to Herod first, and Pilate did not surrender Christ to the desires of the Jews until Herod had sent him back again. So what we have from each writer is that we see differing aspects of the events of the day, and surely because no one writer recorded any of these events completely, and each of them had different perspectives on the events formed from the things that they both saw for themselves and that they heard from others. If we examine all of these accounts and we examine them, examine them properly, none of the accounts conflict and none of them can be proven to be false. Together they give us a much clearer picture than what any individual account gives us by itself. All the accounts are merely different because each writer had a different knowledge or placed a different emphasis 
on the various things which occurred that day. In retrospect, it is fortuitous that the disciples were scattered at this time, because in that manner we have these different accounts from different aspects, and each of them helps to fill in the gaps that a single account from a single perspective would not have been able to provide. As an example of the different perspectives of each writer, comparing the gospel accounts of the trials of Christ, we see that the Judeans did not enter into the praetorium or the judgment hall, as it is called in the King James Version. Rather, the Judeans remained outside. Mark doesn't tell us any of that. He didn't think it was important, perhaps. John 18.28 says, Then they brought Yahshua from Caiaphas to the praetorium, and it was early morning, and they did not enter into the praetorium, that they would not be defiled, but may eat the Passover. The Pharisees didn't believe they could enter into a judgment hall the day before the Passover, evidently. And while Christ would not answer charges against him, which were leveled by the high priests, as it is described in Mark chapter 14, verses 60 and 61, and as we have seen here, once again, Christ made no reply before Pilate concerning the charges made against him by the Judeans, which is a fulfillment, as we have seen, of Isaiah 53.7. Yet, Christ did converse with Pilate himself. As only the Gospel of John describes when Pilate took him away from his accusers into the praetorium, which is actually a Latin word used in the governor's residence. So, so we see the fulfillment of Scripture, and, and we see Christ talk to Pilate, but he was the lamb, and Pilate wasn't really the shearer. Pilate was only a vehicle that the shearers used. Pilate was only the scissors. The Judeans were the people controlling the shearer. They were the responsible for the death of Christ. Now, the, the, the manner in which we have Mark's Gospel and Matthew's Gospel, where Matthew is a very detailed account, uh, I mean, there were details missing in Matthew that we find in Mark and Luke, and, and that's accounted for by the different perspectives and by the different emphasis. The different emphasis being what each of the Gospel writers felt was important to record. As we discussed last week at the Last Supper, John recorded the foot washing, and the other three apostles did not record the foot washing. For some reason, they, they, they felt that the foot washing could be omitted, that the episode wasn't that important to them. At, at least um, Matthew was present at the foot washing, and, and Peter, who gave Mark his gospel, was present at the foot washing, and, and was a central figure in the events surrounding the foot washing, but only John recorded it, because only John apparently thought it was important enough to record. Where we see Matthew have a much more detailed gospel than Mark, that is absolutely consistent with the fact that Matthew was an eyewitness and wrote his gospel closer to the event, and as we have seen from the attestations of the early church writers, the early Christian writers, that Mark was a vicarious witness, that he was transmitting things that Peter had told him long after the, the facts, 
And that would make for a gospel that simply doesn't have the same amount of detail. And, and that's very consistent. And, and, and the historical testimony concerning the creation of the Gospels is very consistent with the content of the Gospels. And the critics should be damned. Mark 15, verse 6. Now each feast he released for them one prisoner whom they interceded for. And there was he called Barabbas, bound with those rebels who in the sedition committed a murder. And the crowd going up began to request just as he did for them. That Barabbas was released to the people as their own wish is mentioned in all four Gospels. It is evident in Matthew 27:15 and explained fully in John 18:39, but not really here in Mark, that on account of a custom in Judea, one criminal each year at this time was granted by the governor a release and a stay of execution. John 18:40 tells us that Barabbas was a robber. Here in Mark 15.7 and also in Luke 23.18, we learn that he was a rebel being held in prison for sedition and murder. Well, well, that doesn't mean that he wasn't a robber, right? Sedition was a very serious offense in the Roman Empire, and along with it, robbery and murder made Barabbas both an enemy of the state and an enemy of the people. Yet, the Judeans esteemed Christ to be an even worse criminal simply because they could not overcome his teaching concerning God and Scripture. And they could not overcome all of the good things which he did. They were threatened by his good works. Self-righteous enemies of God would kill even God himself in order to maintain their own status and dignity. And, And we see that today. We see the Jews doing that same thing today. Barabbas was a murderer and a robber, as the gospel clearly states. And this, too, is symbolic of the children of Israel. That Christ died on behalf of the sinful people so that those sinful people may live. Mark fifteen nine. Then Pilate replied to them, saying, Do you desire that I shall release to you the king of the Judeans? For he knew that on account of envy the high priests handed him over. Any astute observer should see right through the Jews, right? This statement is attested to in Matthew 27, 18. Their envy of Christ is expressed in John chapter 11, verses 47 through 48. The Gospels are consistent all the way through. I'll quote John 11, 47. Then the high priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What do we do, seeing that this man makes many signs? If we should leave him thusly, they shall all believe in him. And the Romans shall come and shall take away both our place and our nation. Matthew 27, verse 17 says, Therefore upon their convening, Pilate said to them, Whom do you wish that I shall release to you? Barabbas or Yahshua, who is called Christ. The language in Matthew supports Luke's account that Pilate had at first sent Christ to Herod, where Matthew says, therefore, upon their convening. Of course, Matthew only leaves us that little hint 
in the middle of the discourse between the Pharisees and Christ and, and Pilate, where we see it spelled out in Luke, Matthew only leaves us a hint, and Mark doesn't really mention it at all. Herod had sent Christ back to Pilate, and Matthew writes, therefore, upon their convening. In Matthew, it is also evident that Pilate knew that Yahshua was called Christ, which means the anointed one. Of course, Pilate, being a Greek speaker, would have understood the definition. And so Pilate must have also known that he had a great following, and that the high priests and others were envious of him, as Pilate states, for that reason. Yet it is also evident that Pilate himself never openly perceived Joshua Christ as a threat to Roman governance. And therefore, Pilate even sought to release him, as we learn especially from the account as it was, as it was related by John. This is even in spite of what we see in Luke, that the high priest had charged Christ with. Here in Mark, we see only that the Judeans accused Christ of many things, as Mark tells us in verse 4. But in Luke, chapter 23, verses 2 through 5, we see this, and I quote, Then they began accusing him, saying, We have found him perverting our nation and preventing giving tribute tax to Caesar and saying of himself to be the anointed king. They are acts of sedition, just like Barnabas was charged with. They are serious acts of sedition, if in fact they're true. Then Pilate asked him, saying, Are you the king of the Judeans? And replying, he, meaning Christ, said to him, So you say. Then Pilate said to the high priest in the crowds, I find not any guilt in this man. But they were more strongly saying that he agitates the Judeans, demanding that Pilate release Barnabas, who was a leader of a sedition. They had to find a way to assert. The Jews had to find a way to assert that Christ was at least as great a threat to Roman authority as Barnabas was, who was really the leader of a sedition. So they did so with outright lies. There is no record in the gospel that Christ himself ever claimed to be the anointed king. Other people said that of him. And there is no record that he taught anyone not to pay taxes to Caesar. In fact, the record claims, the record states, that the opposite is true. That he said, give to Caesar whatever is Caesar's. In other words, take the money and pay your taxes. Caesar's pictures on the money. While it's not recorded here in Mark, it is also evident in Matthew chapter 27, where Pilate questions Joshua concerning some of these charges, that Joshua had Pilate state that he was king of the Judeans when he replied, so you say, to what was actually a question. And Pilate certainly would have realized that rhetorical device, but he was evidently still not threatened or offended by it. So he did not see it as a direct challenge to Roman authority. Pilate did not buy the sedition charge concerning Christ. At this point in Matthew's Gospel, we see Pilate receive a warning from his wife, which does not appear anywhere else in the other Gospels, 
where Matthew wrote at 27.19, then which is sitting upon a step. His wife said, sent to him, saying, You must have nothing to do with that righteous man. For today I experienced many things in a dream on account of him. Pilate's wife, according to Matthew, had a dream, and due to the dream, she had attempted to persuade him to release Christ. Mark 15, verse 11. But the high priest, agitated the crowd and ordered it still more. He should release Barabbas for them. Then Pilate, responding again, said to them, So what shall I do with he whom you say is king of the Judeans? In other words, Pilate doesn't believe the charge, but the Judeans are making the charge. And again they cried out, Crucify him. So Pilate said to them, For what evil has he done? Then exceedingly more they cried out, Crucify him. The high priests, as we see in Acts chapter 5, verse 17, and in Josephus, the historian, the high priests at this time belonged to the sect of the Sadducees. And they had agitated for the death of Christ when Pilate sought to release him. This guilt upon the Judeans is compounded. For in Matthew chapter 27-25, they are recorded as having exclaimed, His blood is upon us and upon our children. Remember that a father can place the burden of a vow or an oath upon all of his descendants. We saw that with the Rechabites. We see it here. As we have seen in the parable of the fig tree, as it was told in Luke chapter 13, where the fig tree clearly represents Jerusalem in the ministry of Christ, and as we have seen with the cursing of the fig tree described in Matthew chapter 21 and here again in Mark, there can never be any good fruit from the people of Jerusalem, which also represents all of those in Judea and elsewhere who never converted to Christianity, those who rejected Christ in the gospel. And here, they admit full guilt for his death, for they all agreed with the Sadducees, and they all bound their children to it. If you have an ancestor in Judea at the time of Christ, and they were agreeing with his execution, his blood is upon you. If you're a Jew, chances are his blood is upon you. Because even though the Jews have race mixed with just about everybody on the planet since the time of Christ, nearly all Jews, unless um, by chance they were adopted from elsewhere and never intermarried with these Edomites, nearly all of today's Jews are certainly descendants of the ancient Edomites and Canaanites of Palestine. As it is recorded in Luke in John 19:15, then they cried out, "Kill, kill him, crucify him." And Pilate says to them, "Shall I crucify your king?" Pilate's only repeating what they had said. The high priest replied, "We have no king except Caesar." Christ himself never directly claimed to be the, their king. 
And even though he would claim the title by, he could claim the title by birthright, he did not. However, the Judeans accused him of claiming the title because that's the way the people of Judea that recognized that he was the Christ understood. And they were right. But Christ still didn't directly claim the title. He made parables that inferred it, but he never made the direct claim of authority. We saw above in Mark 15.9 that the Judeans had made this accusation that Christ claimed to be the king of Judea, but that Pilate understood it to be a false charge. Today, it is important for us to understand that there can be no good fruit from Jerusalem, ever. The people known as Jews today, they all have the blood of Christ upon them, by the declaration of their own fathers, and they all bear the guilt of deicide, the murder of God. There can be no greater crime in the universe. That's why I call the destruction of Christian Europe history's second greatest hate crime. Mark 15, verse 15. Then Pilate determining to do that which is satisfactory for the crowd, released Barabbas for them, and scourging Yahshua handed him over that he would be crucified. Mark's rather concise account nevertheless captures the essence of what had transpired. While Pilate contested the guilt of Christ, and Pilate's objections are portrayed in the other Gospels even more strongly than they are here, he nevertheless relented to the demands of the people. The other Gospels indicate that Pilate would by no means have been able to convince the people otherwise. Matthew chapter 27, verses 24 through 26 state, And Pilate, seeing that nothing helps, but rather a tumult arises, Taking water, washed the, his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent from the blood of this man. You see to it. And responding, all the people said, his blood is upon us and upon our children. Then he released Barabbas for them, but having scourged Joshua, he handed him over in order that he would be crucified. Psalm 26, verses 5 and 6 in consideration of Pilate, I have hated the congregation of evildoers and will not sit with the wicked. I will wash my hands in innocency. So will I compass thine altar, O Yahweh. If Pilate had not relented and a riot had happened in the city, where typically tens of thousands of outsiders were also gathered for the feast, it being Passover, then he himself would have had to answer to Caesar against all the accusations of the Jews. That would have been a situation that he could not have won, since the life of one man who was not a Roman was simply not esteemed in contrast to that peace which is imposed by Roman tyranny. John 19.12 records a threat which the Judeans made against Pilate. If he did not accede to their wishes, 
And it says, from this point, Pilate sought to release him. But the Judeans cried out, saying, if you should release this man, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone making himself king speaks in opposition to Caesar. Now, except for the ten senatorial provinces of the empire, the core of the empire, all of the other provinces were considered to be imperial provinces. The governors of these provinces were appointed directly by the emperor, who at this time was Tiberius Caesar. The phrase, friend of Caesar, represented a political designation in Rome. The emperors gave their friends such appointments as governorships of provinces, which were often very lucrative. The Judeans here are actually making a veiled threat that if Pilate did not accede to their wishes, that they would begin to accuse him before the emperor of being a traitor. In fact, the same thing did indeed happen to Pilate a short time later, as Josephus describes in the 18th book of his Antiquities. However, it was due to an embassy of the Samaritans and not of the Judeans. Pilate was ordered to go to Rome to face Tiberius for certain accusations arising from when he put down a sedition of the Samaritans. Fortunately for Pilate, he never had to face charges because Tiberius died shortly before Pilate arrived in Rome. In old Rome, charges died with the emperor. According to Josephus, Pilate had been in Judea for ten years. Reading Josephus' Antiquities, it was constant among the Judeans to send embassies to Rome to complain about their governors, about their rulers, even their kings. The sons of Herod even went to Caesar in Rome in order to complain about their own father. Herod ended up killing them. So the threat to Pilate was very real, that if you should release this man, you were no friend of Caesar. Anyone making himself king speaks in opposition to Caesar. Looking at one's own career and comparing it to the cost of one life that is seemingly only incidental from the Roman perspective, what is it to a governor to let one man go to his death at the wishes of his own countrymen, whether it be right or wrong, and to spare himself the political troubles gained by upsetting them? Nearly 30 years later, another procurator, another governor of Judea named Felix, Desiring to bestow a favor upon the Judeans, as it says in Acts chapter 24, left Paul in bonds when he left office. He evidently did so because he was leaving Judea for the reasons that the Judeans of Caesarea had an accusation against him, and therefore he had to answer it before Caesar Nero. According to Josephus in Book 20 of his Antiquities, Felix only escaped punishment because of the influence that his brother, Pallas, had with the emperor. And this was in spite of the fact that he evidently sought to make amends with the Jews by leaving Paul in bonds, as Acts 24-27 tells us. So the Jews were constantly going to Rome and crying about their leaders and probably bribing members of the court to get governors in trouble. And, and that's also insinuated by Josephus. A close examination would betray the fact that the Jews of the people had been prone to creating 
political agitation. We've seen it all throughout our history. So that they may be favored as a special class. The latest manifestation of this element of this character is the Holocaust hoax. And they do nothing but use it to agitate politically so that they can distinguish themselves as a special class. It was no different then, and it's the same today. Mark 15, verse 16. Then the soldiers led him off into the court, which is the praetorium, and they called together the whole cohort. And they put on him a purple cloth and bestowed upon him a cross, a crown of braided thorns. And they began to salute, Hail, King of the Judeans. And they beat his head with a reed and spat at him, and kneeling, made obeisance to him. And when they had mocked him, they took the purple cloth off of him and put on him his garments. And they lead him out in order that they may crucify him. Isaiah chapter 50, verse 6. I give my back to the smiters and my cheeks to them that plucked off my hair. I hid not my face from shame and from spitting. Mark fifteen twenty one, And they conscript a certain Kerenian passing by Simon, coming from a farm, the father of Alexandrus and Rufus, in order that he would take his cross. It is incredible the lengths some people go to and the lies they repeat without question in order to make excuses for universalism. Many commentators have asserted that this Simon was some sort of brown Arab or even a Negro simply because he was from Kyrene or, or Cyrene, it's often pronounced. It's spelled C-Y-R-E-N-E which was a district in Africa. First, Simon was a name found among the Greeks, but it was originally and mostly a popular Hebrew name. Here, Mark even mentions the names of his sons as if they were expected to be known by his readers. And we see that Alexandrus and Rufus are certainly common Greek names. Corinne, or Cyrene, was a famous Greek settlement on that part of the African coast, which was adjacent to Egypt on the Mediterranean. The settlement is described by Greek historians as far back as Herodotus, and it probably dates to at least the 7th century BC, prior to the start of the Persian period. It was a large and prosperous Greek colony for many centuries, long after the time of Christ. Simon was with all certainty a Judean Hebrew from Kyrene, fulfilling his scriptural obligation to appear in Jerusalem for the Passover feast. He was certainly not a Negro or an Arab, and those charges mostly by mainstream Christians, are absolutely ridiculous. Because North Africa at the time, all of North Africa, was white. Mark fifteen twenty two, And they bring him upon the place Golgotha, which is interpreted 
place of the skull. I can't let this pass by. There are a lot of extant fables concerning this Golgotha, some of them old and some of them new. One recent character, I refer to Ron Wyatt, claims that the Ark of the Covenant is buried there. He even claimed that he saw it. And he has followers, even followers claiming to be Christian identity, which is absolutely ridiculous. There is no substance or merit to Ron Wyatt's claims. Not one shred of solid evidence is ever presented as proof, and Ron Wyatt is often found to contradict himself. The Ark of the Covenant is not under Golgotha. Golgotha is also mentioned in the apocryphal first book of Adam and Eve, a work which was apparently written quite late, but which does seem to reflect early Christian beliefs and values, some of which may have some merit. It is mentioned again in the book known as Cave of Treasures. The Cave of Treasures is a Without doubt, a spurious work that while some people, even in Christian identity, cling to parts of it as fact, is actually the product of a 6th century A.D. Jacobite writer, and it's full of heresies and fantastic novelties which have no scriptural basis whatsoever. Aside from that, we do not see the word Golgotha in the Bible. except in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and John. Verse 23, And they had given to him wine flavored with myrrh. Myrrh, it's like an ointment from a plant. I'm probably mispronouncing that. The Greek is myrrhus. But which he did not take. Myrrh was bitter. Psalm 69, 21, They gave me also gall for my meat. And in my thirst, they gave me vinegar to drink. This scripture also fits the account related at verse 36 below. Matthew 15, 24. And they crucify him and part his garments, casting lots for them. For what anyone should take. Anyone casting the lots, right? Psalm 22, verses 12 through 18. And I read all of Psalm 22 last week in relation to parts of Mark chapter 14. Verse 12. Many bulls have compassed me. Strong bulls of Bashan have beset me round. They gaped upon me with their mouths. As a ravening and a roaring lion. I am poured out like water. And all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted in the midst of my bowels. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. And my tongue cleaves to my jaws. And thou hast brought me into the dust of death, for dogs have compassed me. The assembly of the wicked have enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I may tell all my bones, they look and stare upon me. They part my garments among them and cast lots upon my vesture. Absolutely a messianic prophecy. John, in chapter 22 of his Gospel, acknowledges the fulfillment of these things, where he writes, in verse 23, Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Yahshua, took his garments and made four parts, a part for each soldier. And the shirt, now the shirt was seamless, woven altogether from the top. 
Therefore, they said to one another, we shouldn't tear it, but we should cast lots for it. Whose it shall be, that the writing would be fulfilled, they divided my garments among themselves and cast lots for my clothing. So therefore, the soldiers did these things. Now it was the third hour, and they crucified him. Now the third hour in Greek time-telling would be 9 a.m. It was testified to in other Gospels that they brought Joshua to Pilate very early in the morning. The third hour is generally 9 a.m. And there was an inscription of his charge having been inscribed, the king of the Judeans. There is a much fuller account in John's Gospel, at John chapter 22, verse 16, where it says, So then he handed him over to them that he would be crucified. Therefore they took Joshua, and bearing the cross for him, they went out to the place of the skull, which is in Hebrew called Golgotha, where they crucified him, and with him two others, on the left and on the right, and Joshua in the middle. Then Pilate wrote an inscription and set it upon the cross, and it was written, Yahshua, the Nazorian, or Nazarene, the king of the Judeans. Therefore, many of the Judeans read the inscription, because the place where they crucified Yahshua was near the city. And it was written in Hebrew, in Roman, or Latin, but it's called Roman, and in Greek. Then the high priests of the Judeans said to Pilate, do not write king of the Judeans, but that he said, I am king of the Judeans. Pilate replied, that which is written, is written. Pilate wasn't changing it. Verse 27. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on the right and one on his left. I'll comment on that in a moment. The verse which the King James Version has numbered as 28 does not appear in the ancient manuscripts. It is a late interpolation, and it reads, And the scripture was fulfilled which says, and he was numbered with the transgressors. The verse does appear in Luke's account of the events in the Garden of Gethsemane, much earlier, right? The day, the day before. In Luke 22.37, where Yahshua himself quotes Isaiah 53.12, which reads, Therefore will I divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he has poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and bare the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. And we see this is a fulfillment of that, but it's added to the text here of the King James. It doesn't belong in the text. And Isaiah chapter 53 is, in its entirety, another messianic prophecy. Mark 15:29, And those going by blasphemed him, shaking their heads, saying, Ha! He destroying the temple and building it in three days. Save yourself, descending from the cross. Likewise also the high priests, mocking between one another with the scribes, said, He has saved others, himself he is not able to save. Christ, King of Israel, descend from the cross now that we would see and believe. And those crucified together with him reproached him. Let me quote Psalm 22, verses 7 and 8. 
All they that see me laugh me to scorn. They shoot out the lip, they shake the head, saying, He trusted on Yahweh that he would deliver him. Let him deliver him, seeing he delighted in him. And Psalm 109.25, I became also a reproach unto them. When they looked upon me, they shook their heads. Psalm 22 is, of course, a messianic prophecy in, in, in its entirety. Luke has a different perspective of what those crucified along with Christ had said. Mark simply says, and those crucified together with him reproached him. We see in the 23rd chapter of Luke's Gospel that Luke actually records a conversation between the robbers. Then one of the criminals hanging blasphemed him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other replying and censuring him said, Do you not even fear God, seeing that you are in the same judgment? And we justly indeed. For we receive worthily, worthily for what we have done. But he has done nothing improper. And he said, Yahshua, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he, meaning Yahshua, said to him, Truly I say to you, comma, Today you shall be with me in paradise. Many people dispute the grammar there. It shouldn't be disputed. If they knew Greek, they would know that they can't dispute it. So here we see again that Mark has a different perspective on these events. He records that those crucified with him reproached him. Luke simply has more details. Luke simply had a witness who was closer to the actual event and was able to record the entire conversation. There is no real conflict there. Mark 15.33 And with the sixth hour coming, there was darkness upon the whole land until the ninth hour. Many attempt to explain this darkness with the solar eclipse. And it can't be explained in that manner. It cannot be characterized in that manner, since the behavior of this darkness is nothing like an eclipse. Eclipses usually come on gradually, and they last at their peak only for a couple of minutes. I myself, I prefer not to conjecture an explanation. The sixth hour represented 12 noon, the way the Greeks told time, and the ninth hour was, of course, 3 p.m., as we measure time today. Both Tertullian, who lived at the end of the 2nd century A.D., and Lucius of Antioch, who lived in the 3rd century, both of those men left writings which asserted with confidence that this event was indeed to be found in Roman records, which are now no longer extant. The third century Christian historian Sextus Julius Africanus, no, he wasn't a Negro, supplied passages from men long before his own time, one being Sallus of Samaria, who lived in the first century, and another being the second century chronicler named Phlegon of Tralles, who is said to have attested to these things. The 4th century writer, Paulus Orosius, stated that not only did the Gospels attest to these things, but also some books among the Greeks. Other writers, such as Eusebius, offer historical 
attestations of this event as it is recorded in the Gospel accounts. It doesn't seem to be scientific. Another argument against the eclipse is that the Passover coincides with the full moon, and we can't have a solar eclipse when there is a full moon. Solar eclipses occur when there is a new moon. I don't insist that this event could be explained by a solar eclipse. I would profess that I don't know how to explain how this happened, but we have plenty of historical historical attestation that indeed it did happen and we shouldn't doubt it. When we doubt these things, I'm not saying that we shouldn't inquire into them, but when we doubt them without any basis in fact, then we're basically calling our ancestors and our forebears a bunch of idiots. That, that's basically what that is tantamount to. Now, now the Jews have no problem with that. The Jews and the scoffers, they love to just um, dismiss our ancestors and forebears as a bunch of idiots. I take my ancestors and forebears a little more serious than that. And while I would admit not being able to explain how the sun was darkened for three hours, I won't merely scoff at it. I would just rather admit that I can't know that and be confident with those portions of the gospel that I can demonstrate historically and that I can understand in the historical context and that I can be confident are absolutely true because of the fulfillment of prophecy and the evidence in history that I can demonstrate. So we have to be confident with what we know and we have to be secure in the fact that we can't know everything. And that is humility. Scoffing is certainly not humility. Mark 15:34. And in the ninth hour, Yahshua cried out with a great voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is interpreted, and, and it's the writer of the gospel, it's Mark, which writes this, which is interpreted, my God, my God, for what reason have you abandoned me or forsaken me? And some of those who stood nearby hearing it said, look, he calls Elijah. So they had a completely different interpretation. The apostles interpreted this utterance of Christ as a fulfillment of the expression in Psalm 22, verse 1, where it says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me and from the words of my roaring? Of course, their understanding cannot be debated, and it is correct. However, it is clear that the people who heard these words did not understand them in that manner. And they believed even that Christ was calling to Elijah, where he called Eloi, Eloi. And, and in Greek, the name that we know in English as it's transliterated from the Old Testament as Elijah, in Greek, every word appears in the New Testament, is it, and in the Septuagint, it is actually Elias. And the Greeks add that S on there, right? 
So it's Eliah. So it's very close to Eloi, right? There is one other possible interpretation of, of this verse, of this passage, and it's the way I prefer to interpret it, even though the apostles are not wrong. And even if this other interpretation is not how the apostles understood the words of Christ here, it is nevertheless wholly plausible that Yahweh, by design, had this phrase contain a dual meaning, that it could possibly be a double entendre. And it certainly is a double entendre. Many Hebrew phrases are double entendres, a, a, a phrase which has two different meanings. As I've often pointed out in my writings elsewhere, in other contexts, that the ancient Egyptian city, Beth Shemesh, meaning house of the sun, and the Greeks understood it to mean house of the sun, and that's the reason why they call that city Heliopolis, which means city of the sun. But Beth Shemesh also means house of the people of Shem. And you can look at the original Hebrew letters, and it's hard to dispute that that phrase can be interpreted either way. Well, so it is here. The Hebrew word El, Strong's number 410, can also mean judge. It appears in this context very often in the Psalms and where the King James Version nevertheless translates the word in the plural as gods. It can mean judges. And where it may have more properly been rulers or judges as it is in the book of Ruth in, in a couple of places. At Ruth 1.5 and 1.15 and 1.16. And, and it's Psalm 136 verse 2 or 138 verse 1 where it should say judges and not gods. Therefore, while David, in the 22nd Psalm, clearly referred to God when he uttered the words, it is nevertheless plausible that Christ here refers not to God, for he is the fleshly embodiment of God, but that he instead uses this phrase in reference to those who judged him to those who condemned him, who had all gone off to the comfort and business of their own lives as he hung there dying. So while I have translated this passage in the traditional manner as, my God, my God, for what reason have you abandoned me? Because that's certainly the intent of the apostles. It may well have been Christ's intention to challenge those who condemned him. My judge, my judge, for what reason have you abandoned me? Judge a man and not watch the execution carried out is cowardice. That's why stoning was basically a fair. And, and I know this seems cruel and barbaric to a lot of people, but stoning was a very fair method of execution. The community judges you, and the whole community has to put you to death. Because if you judge a man... Well, you better be ready to carry out that judgment. Otherwise, you better keep your mouth shut. That's why only God can properly judge us. Mark fifteen thirty six. Then someone running and filling a sponge with vinegar placed it around a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, Permitted. He must have said that to the guards, right? Saying, Permitted, we may see... If Elijah comes to take him down, they believe that he called for Elijah. 
But Yahshua, emitting a great sound, expired. He died. Matthew 27, verses 48 and 49. And immediately one from among them, running and taking both a sponge full of vinegar and placing it upon a reed, gave him to drink. But the rest said, leave him that we would see whether Elijah comes saving him. So they had thought that he was calling Elijah. But another taking a lance pierced his side. We don't see this in Mark. And there came out water and blood. In Matthew, the last line describing the piercing of Christ, while it's wanting in the King James Version, it appears in the Greek, and it also appears in John 1934. Mark 15:38, And the curtain of the temple had torn in two from the top to the bottom. And seeing it, the centurion, who stood nearby from opposite him, that thusly he expired, or he died, said, Truly this man was the Son of God. This is attested to in Matthew 27:54, And in Luke, but Luke records the soldiers having said only that certainly this was a righteous man. Maybe Luke is talking about a different soldier. In Luke 23:47, The Gospel of John does not mention the darkness, the earthquake, or the tearing of the veil. For these reasons, many of the critics of the Synoptic Gospel Gospels use John's Gospel in their attempts to discredit them. Yet it is clear that John's Gospel was written with an entirely different focus, and it contains many details which the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, do not contain. It is therefore patently unfair to pit the Gospel of John against the others, or to use the others against John, especially where they do not explicitly disagree with one another. And there's only a couple of cases, as I pointed out in this series, one being the small event of the chronology of the anointing of Joshua with, with the very expensive ointment. There's only a couple of occasions, and they're minor, where they do disagree. Where the biblical standard calls for two or three witnesses, the biblical critics are calling for four, and they should hold themselves to that same standard. They wouldn't get anything off. Mark 15, verse 40, And there were women observing from afar, among whom were also Mariam the Magdalene, and Maria the mother of the lesser Jacobus, or James, and the mother of Joseph and Salome, who, when he was in Galilee, followed him and served him, and many other women came up with him to Jerusalem. Now, this is attested to by all four Gospels. And we don't see this throughout the Gospel account. I mean, there are occasions where the women are mentioned as being there. But for the most part, the Gospel accounts are focused on Christ. And then they're focused on the intercourse between Christ and the Twelve Apostles, or upon Christ and those who were opposed to him. But it is wrong to think that through these many events, it is only Christ and the Twelve who are present, or Christ and the Pharisees who are present. Here we see that these women were with him all the way from Galilee to the time of his death. And certainly at diverse times and at different events, there were others also who were present together with him and with the Twelve and with the women. Mark 15, verse 42. And already upon it being late, since it was the preparation day, 
which is before the Sabbath, Joseph from Harimathea, having come, an honorable counselor, who also himself was expecting the kingdom of Yahweh, having undertaken it, he entered into Pilate and requested the body of Yahshua. Now we see, and, and I've discussed it before, but I wasn't really prepared to discuss it here, in Acts chapter 1, the apostles themselves anticipated the coming of the kingdom of God and the restoration of the children of Israel. And Yahshua Christ told him, told them that it was not theirs to know the times and the seasons. It was not theirs to know when the children of Israel were going to be restored, when the kingdom of God was going to be instituted on earth. We still wait those times. And there were a lot of prophecies in the Old Testament indicating that it would be a very, very long time before that actually happened. We had the, the two beasts and the 2,520 years prophecy of the punishment of the children of Israel. Christ's ministry was only about 600 years into that 2,520. So we see that even at his time, there were a hell of a lot of years left to go, at least 1,900. And today there are other prophecies in play. Today, while the 2,520 years has recently expired, there's that final time of Jacob's trouble that's spoken about in Scripture. And we await the termination of that time, because we are in it now. So Joseph of Arimathea was an honorable counselor, meaning he was on the council. He, he was one of the Sanhedrin, and he was also expecting the kingdom of Yahweh. And he received the body of Christ from Pilate, having no place to store a dead body. They had no morgue, no refrigeration. They had to bury the body before the feast, and they had little time to do it. Therefore, Christ had to be buried in Jerusalem. Handling a dead body would not preclude a man from Passover, and we can read that in Numbers chapter 9 which shows that those who buried the dead were still required to celebrate Passover in spite of their being considered unclean for seven days. I just thought I'd throw that in there. I've heard people talking about that in the past. Numbers chapter 9. That Joseph was able to approach the Roman governor shows that Joseph was a man of at least some import in the community. Not anybody could just approach the governor. John says in his Gospel in John 19.38, that after these things, Joseph from Harimathea, being a student of Joshua, but secretly on account of fear of the Judeans, asked Pilate that he may take the body of Joshua, and Pilate permitted it. Therefore, he came and took his body. Verse 44. But Pilate wondered if he had already died, meaning Christ, and summoning the centurion questioned him if he had been long dead. And knowing from the centurion, he granted the corpse to Joseph. Although all four Gospels record this event, only Mark records the wonder expressed by Pilate whether Christ was already dead. According to John's account of these events, Nicodemus also helped Joseph bury Christ. He wrote in chapter 19 of his Gospel, that Nicodemus also, he having come to him, at first, at night, meaning, and, and that's a reference to the events in John chapter 3, bearing a mixture of ointment and aloe, about a hundred pounds. Therefore, they took the body of Joshua and they bound it in linen cloths 
with the perfumes, just as it is a custom with the Judeans to bury. Now there was in the place where he was crucified a garden, and in the garden a new tomb, in which no one as yet was buried. So there, on account of the preparation day of the Judeans, because the tomb was near, they had laid Yahshua. Nicodemus is mentioned three times in John's Gospel, in chapters 3, 7, and 19, but he is not mentioned at all elsewhere in the New Testament. He's not mentioned by the other Gospel writers. Verse 46, And purchasing a linen cloth, having taken him down, he wrapped him in the linen cloth and set him in a tomb which was hewn out of the bedrock, and he rolled the stone over the door of the tomb. And Maria the Magdalene and Maria the mother of Joseph observed where he was laid. Not to express certainty that this tomb of Christ has been found, there was at least one similar tomb uncovered by archaeologists in a garden in Jerusalem. When I publish these notes online with this podcast, Yahweh willing this evening, I will include the links to pages discussing this tomb. There's a YouTube and, and there's a, a website. There's a lot of websites which discuss this tomb. It, it's actually a pretty popular tourist attraction in Israel. Go figure in that artificial state of Israel. Some imagine this was actually the tomb of Christ. The tomb is actually a part of a wa- a part of a wall which is built onto the side of a hill or an embankment with a doorway or an archway opening to a hollow in the hill. Originally, a large rounded stone was at one time placed into a groove in front of the archway, which could be rolled out of the way when necessary. In ancient times, bodies of dead family members were laid out in the family tomb until all of the flesh had decayed from their bones. Once that process was complete, the bones were, were removed and they were placed into an ossuary, which is a stone or a chalk or a wooden box that was made to hold the bones of the dead. Poorer families dug deep holes in the ground for the same purpose, to place the bones after the skin had, and the flesh had decomposed. The moving of the bones would make room for the next family member who passed to be laid out in the tomb so that the space in the tomb was reused and the bones were collected into a box every time it was reused. Mark chapter 16, verse 1. And upon the passing of the Sabbath, Maria the Magdalene and Maria the mother of Jacob and Salome purchased herbs in order that having come, they may anoint him. Now, a lot of people might get confused with that statement. Clifton Emmerheiser has a paper on his website entitled Three Days and Three Nights, which dis- and I'll link that paper, too, to this podcast, which discusses this passage in the context of the chronology of the death and resurrection of Christ. This is a passage which is easily passed over, but which is quite instrumental in establishing the chronology of Christ's death and resurrection. It was highly unlikely, 
and it defies the context of what was written here, that the women would have been able to purchase anything in Jerusalem so late on the preparation day of the Passover in a city where the Pharisees had practically complete control to ensure that every aspect of their law and the manner in which they interpreted it would be followed. It is much more practical to imagine that the women were able to purchase herbs after the passing of the High Sabbath, which was the Passover. And this Passover is called a High Sabbath, quite often in the Gospel. After the passing of the Passover, the shops would again be open. And then the women would be able to await the first day of the week. Now, one would expect that the day after a Sabbath was the first day of the week, but not in this instance. This is a high Sabbath. The Passover is a separate Sabbath day from the regular seven-day weekly Sabbath cycle. This would accord perfectly with the assertion by Christ, once we understand this chronology, that he would be in the belly of the earth for three days and three nights, as Christ himself states in Matthew chapter 12, verse 40. If Christ was entombed at the end of the preparation day before the Passover, let's call that a Wednesday for demonstrative purposes. And then if Passover were a Thursday, which lasted on a Hebrew calendar from late Wednesday evening until late Thursday evening, right? If Passover were a Thursday, and if a regular day, which was another preparation day, were Friday, because the Passover is a high Sabbath. And then on Saturday, we have the regular Saturday Sabbath, the seven-day Sabbath. Then the women coming to the tomb on the first day of the week before dawn, as all the Gospels agreed that they did, and shops weren't open before dawn. And finding an empty tomb, that is the only way that Christ's words could have been fulfilled. It was on that intervening Friday, the day between the high Passover Sabbath and the regular weekly Sabbath, that the women were able to purchase the herbs so that they may anoint the body of Christ. So Christ was in the tomb Wednesday night and Thursday. That's the first day and night. Thursday night and Friday, that's the second day and night. Friday night and Saturday, that's the third day and night. Sunday morning, the women come to the tomb and find it empty because Christ had ascended the night before. That's three days and three nights. Anything else is not three days and three nights. If you contend with that, you better pull three days and three nights out of your pocket and come up with a better interpretation, and I will listen. As long as you have three days and three nights. Matthew twelve forty. Mark 16, verse 2. And very early in the morning on the first day of the week, they come to the tomb upon the rising of the sun. And they said to themselves, 
Who shall roll away thrust the stone from the door of the tomb? And looking up, they observed that the stone had been rolled away, for it was exceedingly large. Christ had already been resurrected the night before, after spending three full days and three full nights in the tomb. Verse 5, And having entered into the tomb, they saw a youth sitting on the right, clothed in a white robe. And they were astounded. Then he says to them, Do not be astonished. You seek Yahshua the Nazarene, who had been crucified. He is arisen. He is not here. Behold the place where they laid him. But you go, tell his students and Peter, that he goes on before you into Galilee. There you shall see him just as he said to you. Matthew fails to mention Salome, where Luke makes a general statement concerning the rest of the women with them. Luke adds a second youth, dressed in white, who encountered the women. The first two Gospels certainly do not rule out the possibility of the second youth just because it describes the women as talking to one youth. John's account focuses only upon Mary Magdalene. He doesn't really mention the other woman. The account that the, John gives an account which the other apostles did not fully repeat concerning Mary's report to Peter and John, her return to the tomb with them, and her encounter with Christ. Luke does corroborate Peter's going to the tomb at this time, upon the report of Mary Magdalene. While John's account focuses on what happened to Mary at that time, Luke's account focuses on what happened to Peter. Upon close inspection, with a minor idiosyncrasy or two, None of these gospel accounts make any of the others implausible. Rather, they often complement one another and corroborate one another. Once again, we see a much more complex story being told only in part by each of four or more different witnesses, since Luke employed multiple witnesses for his gospel, as he tells us. All four of these Gospels, may easily be considered to be true, and none of them suffer at the hands of any other. There are no real discrepancies once you put all four of them together. They are just different aspects of the same event told from different perspectives. Verse 8. And having gone, they fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment held them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Of course, they said nothing to anyone until they did as they were directed to return to the apostles and relate to them with it, that which they had seen. The Gospel of Mark ends here. The 27th edition of the Nestle Aland Novum Testamentum Grece which is the scholarly and critical edition of the text of the New Testament Greek which I have employed as a primary text for all of my own studies supplies three endings to the Gospel of Mark. 
all of which it considers as being spurious. The first ending is short. It's just a few lines. And it begins appearing in some Greek manuscripts in the 6th century and later. It's only in a small collection of Greek manuscripts, however. The second, longer ending, is that which is known in English from the King James Version of the Bible. And the King James translation is not bad. It is found in the 5th century codices, Alexandrinus, Ephraim Siri, and Bezai. The Codex Bezai or Bezai. The Alexandrinus and the Ephraim Siri are what we know as the Alexandrian tradition. A third version of the ending of Mark is the same as the second, except that it has an additional lengthy interpolation. And that is found only in the 5th century Codex Washingtonensis. It's called the Codex Washingtonensis. It's an ancient codex which is actually stored in Washington, D.C. That's where it's housed. I will not translate any of these endings here except to say that from these additions to Mark, and they are additions and we will see that, come many bad ideas, such as the idea that Christians should be able to handle snakes and drink poisons. The longer version of this ending, however, also conflicts. It has a direct conflict with the account found in the Gospel of John, and I'll explain that. It places, if you read the long ending of Mark found in the King James Version of the Bible, it places the discourse between Christ and Mary Magdalene as having occurred before the return of Mary Magdalene to the apostles, upon which Mary, Peter, and John, as attested to both in Luke and in John, were said to return to the tomb. John chapter 20, verses 1 to 10. Therefore, my reasons for rejecting all of these additions are based upon both the manuscripts and the contextual evidence. If the ending has a conflict, and it has a clear conflict with the other Gospels, then it must be spurious, and it is. And the manuscripts prove that it's spurious. The older manuscripts of the 4th century, the Codex Sinaiticus and the Codex Vaticanus, do not contain any of these endings to Mark. Neither do many of the older manuscripts of the works of Eusebius or Jerome. Jerome, the translator of the Latin Vulgate, Eusebius, the famous ecclesiastical historian. And they wrote in the 4th and in the 5th centuries. So for all of these reasons, along with other internal evidence, the Christogenia New Testament translation of Mark's Gospel ends at 16.8. It is apparent that either Mark never had the chance to finish his gospel, or perhaps there was an ending for which one reason or another was lost sometime before the 4th century. We may never know. It is apparent that some men thought God needed help, and Mark needed help, and tried to finish his gospel for him, and they just screwed it up. Or maybe they wanted to screw it up. Teaching Christians to drink poison and handle snakes is kind of out there. Something you'd see on. I won't say it. George Norrie, 
Coast to Coast, Jordan Maxwell, one of those programs, Alex Jones. Okay. I want to thank you all for listening tonight. There's a lot more I could say about the Gospels. When I presented Matthew chapter 28, I, I presented an explanation of why Christians should believe the resurrection. I thought to repeat that here, but I will save it perhaps for the Gospel of John. And and um, I hope, I pray, Yahweh willing, that I am able to present that by the end of next year, sometime around the end of the world, right? Well, that's not going to happen. We'll still be here in 2013. Praise Yahweh! Again, I thank you for listening. God bless you all.